0: Amen. So good to be with you this morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. Continuing, we're part two of a two-part series. So if you've missed part one, it's available online. I highly encourage you to check that out. Okay, good. We're still alive? We're all alive. All right. Um, I encourage you to check that one out because this is the follow-up for that. So you'll get a lot out of it today, but it really, it's a book-ended set, and it's a suitable for framing and for gifting uh, for friends at Christmas. Just kidding. This is God's word to us this morning from the book of Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul's advice to a young church, newer Christians uh, trying to live in the world for Jesus. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence... Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. We might be able to dwell on that passage for an entire year uh, as, a, as a society, not as a church. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Father God, may you honor the reading of your words today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, with the work of your Holy Spirit to bring to bear on the lives, the hearts, the minds of each of us gathered here in this moment, in this place, those who are gathered online, those who will watch even at a later date already ordained by you. I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring your word, your truth to bear in our lives. As we find ourselves in a warped and crooked generation, as you call us to shine like stars, as we hold fast to the word of life. Lord, as we look to you, Lord, for those of us who are just getting so overwhelmed by the the, the struggles and the chaos and the the, the corrosion and the corruption in our culture, Lord, I pray that we will be able to shift our eyes from the kingdom of this world to your kingdom, which is the real reality and the true truth. So Lord, for those of us who are discouraged and distracted, I pray for a a renewed laser-like focus on you, your word, your purpose, your will, your goodness, O oh God. Lord, for those who still doubt. Lord, I pray that as the darkness in our culture gets darker, the light and the, the, the brightness of your light will shine even more clearly and be more attractive. For those to 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 stop, stop dabbling, to stop dillying, and to to decide to go all in with you. Get us off of the fence, Lord Jesus. And for those who are just either downtrodden or discouraged because personal things, personal life is, is falling apart and it's a day-to-day struggle just to make it through. I pray for a fresh work of your spirit to reinfuse and to re-energize every heart and mind with the assurance of your purpose and your will. Lord, your presence and your power working within them to redeem their story, to redeem their struggle. Lord, and to use your story through them for your glory. As always, Lord God, I ask in this time that my words do not get in the way of your word, but that you speak, that you work, that you bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted high. Your Son, O Father God, our Savior, our Lord, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, this is the second part of a two-part series on dealing with some of the things that our culture is facing right now. And right now, our culture is in a culture of chaos and confusion and absolute contradiction as well. And yes, they all need to start with the letter C because I'm a preacher. We're actually officially required in preaching class to alliterate everything. It's a requirement. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. Oh. I am remiss. So before we get into that, I got to say a special hello to some people who are joining with us online today. First off to Stephen, who's joining us from Virginia Beach, Virginia today. Stephen, we want to say hi. And uh, I'm excited to continue to hear what the Lord is doing in your life. So glad that you're with us today. I also want to say hi to Nancy and Joanne in Washington State. Uh, Joanne, we're so happy that your recovery from your recent uh, health issue is going well. And Nancy, glad you could be there for your mom, but please hurry back because Randy's driving us crazy. <laughs> I am going to pay for that later. So when Randy watches this at a later date, Randy, um, yeah, I owe you lunch this week. So I will be, I will be getting a text before the sermon is over. Before that one, I am pretty certain. And then lastly, I wanted to say um, congratulations to our new associate pastor, Jonathan Gray, and his wife, Lisa. Uh, this is... Uh, they were married uh, on Friday, and this is their honeymoon weekend, so I'm sure they're watching today, and we are glad that you're with us as well. All right, I got all that taken, taken, taken care of. But as we look back at our culture, we know things just don't seem right. And especially those of us who are more grounded in the faith and, or grounded in the Word of God, we look around and we're like, how can things continue to just to spiral in such an ungodly manner? So yes, there is, there is consternation. There is discouragement. There is frustration. There is anger. All of those things can be very legitimate emotions, But we've got to remember just a number of very key important truths. Those are the ones I captured last week. God has ordained for us to be alive in this place at this time for his purpose. So God is not surprised by all the cultural upheaval that we are going through. Instead, he has called us into that cultural upheaval for a purpose, to shine like stars. God is in control. God has got this. God has got us. And here we are here for a purpose. But as we do look at our culture, those of us who are now of a certain age, in our 40s, 50s, 60s, we're even older, we have seen incredible, radical change in our culture. Here in America, we're in the West in general. Culture has changed radically. And we see this in signs all around us, such things as just reduced civility, in conversation and in language. In the early days of television, you could not cuss. (laughs) You couldn't show a married couple in bed together. We've devolved quite a bit in that regard. How about the changes in public discourse? There's a coarseness and a crassness now, absolutely unimaginable to those who were, or just, you know, a few years ago. Pervasive sexualization of everything and everyone. Family disintegration, which continues to be the number one determining factor for every societal ill, of every ethnicity and every socioeconomic class. Family disintegration is the number one negative contributing factor, rejection of personal responsibility, accepting fault now seems to be the completely inadmissible sin, corruption of the rule of law, and so many other things now that we are seeing that were unimaginable just a few short years ago. But these are merely symptoms of a of a fundamental underlying shift in the predominant worldview of the population. And we looked at worldview, I kind of explained that a little bit more last week. A worldview is just simply how you see the world. Every individual person has a worldview. They have a lens through which they interpret new information and new experiences. It's like like a sieve that they put things through, that we put things through, new experiences. When we hear a a story, we automatically deem it as worth listening to, or we deem it skeptically. When there's something that happens, we interpret it, and we interpret the contributing factors. There's all these, these presuppositions we have, and that's what a worldview is. It's the basic presuppositions. Now, those presuppositions may be true, partially true. They may be completely false. But these are the ones we hold. Sometimes we hold them consciously. We hold them unconsciously. We're consistent or we're inconsistent. But it's how we evaluate new information and experiences. It's the foundation of how we think and act. Because when somebody does something that we deem wrong or that society does wrong, what's one of the first things we say? What were they thinking? (laughs) What they were thinking was the direct result of their worldview. They thought what they thought. They thought why they thought it, because of their worldview. All of us do that. And the worldview of the culture, the population in general, has shifted immensely just in the last couple of generations. Now, retracing a little bit of history. For the West, the Protestant Reformation in Europe back in the 16th century, sparked widespread investigation, exploration, and engagement with the Bible. Between the Protestant Reformation, the Gutenberg printing press, the the publication, the availability of the Bible for the masses, not just the the sole restriction of the the primary church at the time. The Bible, the world of the Bible was opened up to people, and as as scholars especially began to explore, eyes were opened, worldviews were expanded. And the Protestant Reformation led into the Enlightenment, the exploration of the world and the the creation of the sciences and so many other things. But that was based upon an exploration of the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see that there is a God who created and a God who created with an order. So the original scientists figured that if God created in an orderly fashion, let's look at the order of creation. It's studyable. It's discernible. We can figure it out. And as we look at the intricacies of the order, we can see the hand of God at work. And as we see the hand of God at work, we can know God better. We can praise God more, more passionately because we see the handiwork by which he created the world and us. That was the original intention and motivation of science, the order of the world designed by God in order to give praise to God. Philosophy, the pursuit of truth, and so many other things, that explosion of intellectual advancement, technological advancement, and these huge advances were done that led to what has been deemed as, as modernity, the modern era, no longer modern for us, but it was modern at that time, 19th and the 20th centuries, the 1800s and the 1900s particularly. And, and because of the pervasiveness of the Reformation and the Enlightenment, modernity's worldview in the West was very biblically infused. It was very biblically based. The general population understood, yes, that there is a God. There is a God who is creator. That the world has been ordered. That there is a moral system that transcends the cultural milieu of, of, of different societies. And it was that worldview that allowed society to flourish, including America, as we were founded out of, that, out of the beginnings of that worldview and as the early years of America, that Basic worldview held by the vast majority of the population that was biblically based allowed for a cohesive nation to thrive and to grow. That's when we flourished. Now, it's the majority of the population held to the basic tenets of a biblical worldview a creator God, an absolute standard of truth and morality. The Bible is God's Word, Jesus as a worthy Savior, or at least worthy of being a model of morality. Jesus was esteemed, and then, of course, personal culpability and the need for forgiveness. Now, it's essential to note that acceptance of a Christianized worldview does not equal adherence to the Christian faith. The Christian faith requires a personal allegiance and obedience to Jesus. Not just the acceptance of a set of propositional truths, but personal devotion, personal acceptance, personal change. So, as society accepted basic tenets of Christianity, the majority of the population was still not personally in line with Christ. That's a disjointing. That's a disconnect. And it was from that disconnect that led to all of the faults and the failures of modernity, which led into post-modernity, after modernity. And such things as God as creator began to fall into disfavor the idea of absolute truth or or an absolute moral standard imposed from without upon a culture completely seems ridiculous and was replaced by situational ethics and cultural criteria and things like that. Under the guise of postmodernism, it's truly secularism that was just sent out to assail against all the basic tenets of modernity. And I'm not saying we should return to modernity. That was not the point at all that ship has sailed and it's good that that ship has sailed but when we untethered from all of the biblical truth we began the untethering and being set adrift and now we are tossed about proverbially like a ship upon every wind and wave and whim of people's feelings and cultural trends and the loudest voices Secularism assailed those tenets, and and the the root, the the, the baseline of, of secularism is that it replaced objectivism with subjectivism. What that basically means is that the person, the individual, became the locus of truth. Rather than truth being objective, set, defined, it now becomes what we think, what we feel, what we decide, what we determine. Truth is no longer something to be discovered, but it is something to be determined. And that is now pervasive in our culture. Because, see, now in the language of the day is, you have your truth, I have my truth. That is completely illogical. It is irrational. Truth is truth. Truth cannot be divided, cannot be separated, cannot be contradictory. My truth is that there is one God and one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through faith in Him, we are forgiven and we are, we are, we are made alive and we are promised eternity. That's my truth or my, uh, my adherence to what I conceive as the truth. But somebody else's truth is oh, there's not one God, there's many Gods, there's, there's dozens of Gods, hundreds of Gods, millions of Gods, whatever it may be. And God is whatever, whoever, whichever you want to make it. Just live and be nice. See, those truths, are, those truths are contradictory. And the basic rule of logic is that truth cannot be contradictory. If it's contradictory, it's not truth. But we've come to the time in society now where it's you have your truth, I have my truth. Truth is what you make it. Be, because we think that, that our view, our perspective gives us a unique side and a legitimacy for determining what truth is. This is why our culture is failing. And it's why our culture is in crisis. Because we have autonomized the individual so much to, to set truth and to determine truth. And our truths are going to be contradictory and competing. It's an untenable, it's an untenable ramp that we're on. We can't go too much farther down the road because now we said everything is determined by the individual. But, as I like to say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because this appeal to individual autonomy, perhaps it sounds familiar to you. Because it actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the beginning Eve and Adam being tempted by the serpent, Satan, we find in the book of Revelation. The serpent sets out to question God and to to entice Eve and Adam, and they're both complicit because Adam was right there. She was naked, so he was staring at her. That's how that all works out. (laughs) But Satan enticed both of them. It's like, you know, You will not die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing, in a sense, determining what is good and what is evil. No longer with God in charge, no longer with God setting the standard, but now with us being able to discern and decide and to determine what is good and what is evil. That's the basic lure of this, of this elevation of individuality. Pride is still the chief sin. So here's what I really wanted to hit in our current culture. Currently, our culture is sliding from post-modernity into an as-yet-unnamed age. They're trying to call it post-post-modernity. That's just stupid. That doesn't work. They've got to come up with something more pithy. It'll probably be the next generation that figures it out. But right now, we're living in an unnamed age, and any unnamed age is kind of a free-for-all. And right now, our culture is in a huge battle of two competing and contradictory worldviews. It's a clash of these idealisms and these idealistic driving forces. The first is this. The personal elevation of the self above all else. You do you. To thine own self be true. Follow your heart. All of those, by the way, are false, wrong, destructive, corrosive, damaging, dangerous, everything else selfishness leads not only to societal decay but it leads to personal self destruction but that's that's the competing voice that's the loudest voice in our society right now the elevation of the self above all else that's the personal message but societally from the intellectuals supposedly <laughs> the elite The influencers, those who think they know better for all of us, they have bought into what is an ideology called critical theory. Now, critical theory actually was originated differently. It was mostly applied to legal cases and legal structures, things like that. But it soon transformed into critical race theory. And CRT now is pervasive in all things. Critical theory, critical race theory is just simply the application of Marxism to modern society. If you remember Karl Marx and the things that he espoused a couple of few generations ago now that have led nothing but a path of historical death, destruction, and mass inhumanity, his worldview has led to the death of tens of millions of people on this planet. He is an absolute emissary of Satan, so is everything that he wrote. But it continues to be espoused. Marx postulated that society was divided into the haves and the have-nots, and yes, that that is a good observation. But his thing was to to distribute or distinguish everything by class and the continuing class warfares and things like that. Instead, now that has been morphed into, it's no longer just class envy or class warfare. Critical race theory has postulated that every strata of society is divided and defined by certain criteria. Now it's about perceived power or perceived privileges over those who are oppressed or victimized. Now, one caveat Yes, injustice in this world is very real. And injustice is very near and very dear to the heart of God. Defeating and fighting and replacing injustice with righteousness is the theme throughout the entire scriptures. But how do we define injustice? How do we define righteousness? Very important. And the current definitions of injustice and righteousness, according to CRT, are not biblically based. There's growing voices now from the Christian Christian world about this is what true justice is and what true injustice is as well. And there's so many Christians throughout the ages have been fighting that. There's, There's wonderful stories and resources and there's so much good on that but with CRT giving blanket statements, assigning arbitrarily privilege status or victimhood status, wholesale, whole scale, simply based on external criteria. Do you see the contradiction? In CRT, you are only what people can see. You're only the color of your skin. You're only the type or size or or amount of house that you live in, the car that you drive, the amount of education you have or you don't have. You are arbitrarily assigned en masse to a certain category, and then those categories are labeled either as, as oppressor or oppressed. Regardless of your individuality, your individual, you know, culpability, or your individual achievement. CRT directly goes against, directly contradicts that driving impulse of our culture to be your own autonomous self because CRT eliminates self-identity and agency, the ability to will, to think, to act, to achieve, to be responsible, yes, for righteousness, unrighteousness, justice, and injustice, this is the clash our culture is going through. And that's why everything is so chaotic. That's why everything is so freaking confusing right now. Because these two ideologies have put themselves up as, as, as the truths to pursue, and they are contradictory. They are also both completely, not only unbiblical, but they are anti-biblical. They are anti-Christian. There's a fantastic book out. I really highly encourage it for everyone who is interested in such things. Author Natasha Crane has written Faithfully Different. And she explores a bunch of these issues, and she she puts together a fantastic refutation of so many of these ideologies and a really good, a nice path forward. But she does such a great job. She has defined the four guiding truths or the guiding lights for this current generation, this current cultural milieu we find ourselves in. She summarizes them like this. Feelings are the ultimate guide. After all, if it feels good, do it. So feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. As I've mentioned last week and as Jonathan mentioned two weeks ago, here on the Central Coast we live in what has been researched to be the ninth highest percentage of the American population that is deemed as post-Christian. So from Santa Barbara to Salinas the the the, the culture we find ourselves in this this swath of the Central Coast of California is the highest percentage of post-Christian population in the United States. We're higher than Seattle, Tacoma. We're higher than the Portland area, just just barely. The other eight are all East Coast. So we're the highest percentage on the West Coast of people who are post-Christian. That means the highest percentage, 54% of our population, are those who have not been a Christian in the past or, or been involved in a church in the past. The children who have, have not been raised knowing uh, biblical truth or Bible stories or any kind of orientation to the Christian faith whatsoever, except in terms of the broad stereotypes where, where you know, celebrities and influencers rail against certain things that Christians have done wrong. So we live in an amazingly untapped area of people who may be very open to true biblical truth. But this is what's guiding them right now. This is what's motivating. This is what's empowering. This is what's driving them. Not a concept of God who has called them and and given them a significant eternal purpose. Not a God who is actively directing their lives or has a distinct specific will for their lives in terms of righteousness or unrighteousness. These are the things Feelings, happiness, judgment free zones, which I admit I do really appreciate at Planet Fitness. Although it's a slogan, but I'm telling you, you're getting judged. (laughs) And when I'm there, I'm judging people too. But this is our culture. And God is not in heaven, with His hand on His forehead, saying, "Oh good, good, good me! What have I done down there?" God is not wringing His hands, saying, "Oh, oh, my, my, my poor children down there! They're just, they're just really going through it now." The majority of human history has been far worse than today. It's frustrating, it's irritating, it's anger, all that kind of I understand that. But God is not God is not discouraged. God is not surprised. Not, God is not caught off guard. God is not powerless in the midst of all of this. God called us for such a time as this. God has called us, and God has resourced us with His word, with His spirit, with the truth. And Jesus says, "The truth will set you free you see all of this the individuality the 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 critical race theory impositions on society they are bondage they are chains upon people's hearts and minds and lives and we are seeing the destruction of that lives lived purely for pleasure and individuality it's an absolute train wreck that we're seeing in our society look at the addiction rates look at the suicide rates The mental health crisis that our culture is in is a direct result of a faulty worldview. CRT has pitted brother against brother and sister against brother because that's all it does. It only divides, it only separates, it only distinguishes. It cannot unify, it cannot overcome, it cannot give redemption, it cannot give hope, it cannot change people's hearts, minds, and lives. Only Jesus can. That's Jesus. So how are we as Christians supposed to navigate all this? What are we supposed to do? Well, let's sit around and complain and write our senators and fret and worry and grumble. Oh, darn it. There's that word of God again. Do all things without arguing or complaining. Well, dag nabbit. What am I supposed to do now? Oh, that's right. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I got to get to being and doing what Jesus said to be and to do. Because I need to shine like a star in this warped and crooked generation. I need to hold fast to the word of life personally. I need to hold out the word of life for this society. God has given us everything we need in God's word which has proved true and trustworthy. You can find all sorts of arguments on the internet. And you can find all sorts of personalities who will say that they have, they have determined and they have proven that the Bible cannot be God's word and it is not God's word. And every single argument, there's nothing new under the sun. Every single argument they've brought to bear has been answered encountered, and, and refuted time and time again. But the resources are there. He's got checking. I remember I was talking with an eighteen-year-old girl. This is years ago now, and or she was actually fourteen. She was dating an eighteen-year-old. Her, her, her dad was very concerned because the boyfriend was very. He was eighteen. He was very worldly because he read Nietzsche, and he just thought that he was the smartest thing walking the planet. And I mean, his his ideas were enticing this, this young girl into all sorts of stupidity. So the dad says, "Here, you meet with her. You you fix her." Well, thanks, Dad. And I remember meeting with her, and she's like, oh, my boyfriend, he is so smart. Man, he's read all this stuff from Nietzsche and these other philosophers, and man, there is no God, there is no truth, there is no good, there's only nihilism in this world. And I says, so he he likes to read, huh? Oh, yeah, he's reading all the time. I says, well, has he ever read anything... Written to defend or argue for the existence of God, the proof of the Bible being God's word, anything that, that verifies that Jesus lived and died and rose again. She sat down on the ship and she goes, they have those? Yes. I have a few hundred in my library as it is. And there's plenty more. The scriptures themselves and Christian theologians have amassed a treasure trove of biblically faithful, culturally relevant, and personally powerful resources for dealing with all this stuff. You just got to take a little bit of time to go to the Word or to go to these resources. It's arming for battle. It, it, it's, 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 it's girding up your loins, old old scripture language. It's getting ready for the fight. But we have everything we need. God's word stands true. And it's not only from just all the external things. Remember, the, 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 the people in modernity, they believed the Bible was the word of God. They accepted that as a truth, but the majority of the population did not submit themselves to it. So we have the resources, but you still got to submit yourself to it. And that's where the proof is in the pudding. Because God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It continues to change lives. When you put the principles and the teachings of Scripture into practice in your own life, you will be set free. Jesus says you will know the truth. The truth is God's Word. The truth is Him. You will be set free. And when you learn how to love and to forgive and to be gracious... And to serve humbly, your life is absolutely transformed. But it's got to be put into practice. Second of all, in our chapter of Philippians 2 that I read at the beginning, the entire chapter is worth its weight in gold. Probably why it made God's word in the first place. God knew it would be important. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul clearly lays out how followers of Jesus are to live, love, and influence the culture in which we live. Yes, we live in a warped and crooked generation. This is not news, nor is it new. Every generation since sin has been warped and crooked. In fact, that scripture that that Paul quotes is actually a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, which was written more than 1,000 years earlier. Moses was saying, quoting the words of God, that they're living in a warped and crooked generation. Do you understand that 1,000 years earlier is 25, more than 25 generations before Paul wrote this in the first century? Every one of those 25 plus generations and, and, and the 50 plus since are warped and crooked. It's a broken record over and over again. Every generation is. But we are to shine among them like stars. Did you catch that simple word? Among. It means we've got to be present. We've got to be here. We've got to be visible. We've got to be vocal. We've got to be among those lost in the darkness of these ideologies in the world. To shine, that evokes distinction of light in darkness. It's not about being better than or morally superior. It's not about having any kind of air of arrogance. But it does mean to live distinctly, to live differently. We shine like stars when we imitate Jesus intentionally and actively in our daily lives. So don't grumble, don't argue, look to Jesus and make sure you look more like jesus no you don't have to go to the tanning booth and, and get the longer hair and start wearing sandals god forbid on that but look like jesus and how he conducted his life i want everybody to close your eyes just for a moment the scripture the scripture i'm going to read is on the screen I, w- I just want you to to like the first christians did There was no handouts. There was no Bibles that they held. They simply heard this letter from Paul. And they heard about Jesus setting the standard for them. So close your eyes and just listen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can you imagine hearing that for the very first time when you went to church and we got a letter from Paul today. That's a special treat. We're going to hear about Jesus Don't grumble, don't complain, don't argue, don't whine, don't be selfish. Instead, look to Jesus who humbled himself, became obedient to death. He he emptied himself. That's what the scriptures say there. He he, he put aside his his wants and desires in order to serve God. That's the model. In a world of selfishness and self-absorption, That stands out. And yes, you will be ridiculed, you will be mocked, you will be taken advantage of, I guarantee it. So what? Because the very person who mocks you and makes fun of you and takes advantage of you, somewhere in that scene of heaven, they are going to be on their knees confessing Jesus Christ is Lord just like you are. God's got to worry about it, not us. So we look to Jesus and we look like Jesus when we conquer the fickleness and the self-destruction of feelings by yielding autonomy to Jesus' authority over our lives. It means being a disciple. We find life by dying to self. You see, feelings may be the, the, the ultimate guide. It is the ultimate guide to destruction. There is a way and a path that seems right to a man, but it's, in the end it is death. Jesus says, come to me, lose your life, and you will find it. We conquer that fickleness. We conquer the feelings when we die to self and replace it with submission to Jesus. We look to Jesus and we look like Jesus when we supplant fleeting happiness for the contentment of joy. Jesus' joy, which comes from obedience and endurance within the Father's will, is bestowed to us. Happiness is based on what is happening. Joy is constant. It is entrenched. It is deep. It is internal. And it is abiding. Jesus, he loved sacrificially. That brings joy. The issue of judgment is obviously a big one, but we will... Look like Jesus and look to Jesus when we speak and embody grace and truth in a world filled with lies and inability to forgive or to redeem. Yes, the truth hurts sometimes. We need to speak the truth in love. And we need to extend grace and forgiveness. The author Philip Yancey has written a number of books and he grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian home and as he got older in life, he just rebelled against that and wanted nothing to do with the church, with Christianity, with Jesus, the faith or anything. So he goes down to the world. He's very accomplished. He's very successful. He's, he's a very gifted individual. And as he's living in the midst of the world, he realizes something. The church that he grew up in did not get grace right. They emphasized Truth. They're very legalistic, very rigid, all that kind of stuff. They didn't get grace right, but they talked about grace. At least it was conceptualized for them. He said, He goes, As I got into the world, I realized that the church didn't necessarily get grace right, but at least it had it when the world had none. He came back to faith. Some of his books are absolutely incredible then include the book, "What's so Amazing about Grace?" It's a good book. We look to Jesus and we look like Jesus, and by doing this, God will no longer be a guess. We will know. We will see and we will know God the Father, because Jesus said, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The words I speak are from the Father. We know God by knowing His Son Jesus." And our faith is confident and sure. It is not a guess. It is not a wish. It is not just a myth that we embrace. Historical veracity, philosophical, logistical, (laughs) consistency, personal, transformative proof. That's how we bring Christ to culture. But it starts with us, looking to Jesus and looking like Jesus in a world that needs Jesus now more than ever. I'd like to have Tay and the team come back up as we prepare for a time of communion. Communion is where we take bread and juice. It honors Jesus for his sacrifice for us for our sins. We have a little set that you can come get in the front in just a few moments. The Bible says that Jesus took our sin in his body on the cross. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, and he instituted this act of worship. He says, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took A glass of wine they had back in the day. And he said, This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So, in this act of communion, we are honoring Jesus that we are forgiven, that our sins are cleansed and taken from us, but that through Jesus and allegiance to him, we are made new, we are made different.